0: This episode is brought to you by Resource Consulting Services, Australia's leading provider of holistic, regenerative farm business education and advisory services. The Grazing for Profit School has been delivered in every Australian state to more than 5,500 farmers, empowering them to increase profit, lift the health and production of their land, improve relationships in their business and enhance their work-life balance. Learn more at rcsaustralia.com.au. the Central Station podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, work hard look good and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariot.com.au today. John and Annette Henwood managed the iconic Kimberley cattle station Fossil Downs for over 50 years. In this episode, John shares some family history Memories of his childhood growing up on Nookenbar Station and meeting his wife. John also speaks about how an experience in the early 1980s led him to change his management style and become the first pastoralist to develop a rotational grazing system in the Kimberley and take the pathway to practicing regenerative agriculture. We were joined in this episode by a mutual friend, Jardine MacDonald, so you will hear him pop up occasionally in the conversation. I asked John at the beginning of our conversation to tell me a bit about his family's history in the Kimberley.
2: George Rose is my grandfather, my mother's father, and um, he came up to the Kimberleys when Forrest first came up, and he was a horse tailor for Forrest for a while. But my mother was up helping her brothers on um, Liveringa and Mount Anderson Station, When she met my father who came from Narra Court in Kali on the South Australian Victorian border. And my father was very, um, into regeneration of the the country and did all sorts of things, you know, putting humps over roads to stop erosion, putting humps in creeks and stopped, you know, steady the flow of the water down, collecting species of seed and, um, he used to give a shilling a bag to pick buffalo seed. We thought we were millionaires. And, um, it even gallons curse. We used to have to pull that out when, if we saw it, you know, to try and help the, the country. But as we got the, with the stock effect and the country and, and um, pulling the gallons curse out, we end up with hardly any gallons curse at all because the, the buffalo took over from the gallons curse. Look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. I don't, I haven't been reading into the history. All I know is the great grandfather, and you know, this is your life story. <laughs> well, if you knew how complicated and how many bloody roads, roads, um, relations there are, you'd be a bit puzzled too. Because as when, when I was getting married, my uncle, one of my uncles came up to Annette and said, you "Don't worry, to get that worried look off your face, you're marrying a Henwood, not a Rose."
1: Oh, yes. Okay. So on your mother's side, it was the rose. And so we've got the, some of the early explorers back in the, the pioneering that, days. And then your father came up and your mother's side of the family is already established in the Kimberley by then. Yeah. yeah when, that, whenabouts would that have been?
2: Oh, uh, um, well, dad went to, he, he, um, told a lie and got into the first light horse and he served in the light, first light horse. When he came back, he came up to Noonkabar. In the 1920s type of thing.
1: So your father served in the First World War? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And what made him, if he grew up, you said just around that South Australian Victorian border after he'd come back from serving, what made him want to come up to the Kimberley?
2: Oh, I think, um, before he came to the Kimberley, he worked on a sheep, a big sheep stud over in, in, um, South Australia. Um, I can't remember the names of it and all that, but, was one of the big sheep places, and you got a liking to sheep. And when they heard though the manager's job at Noonkanbah, he applied for it and got it.
1: So was was there sheep at Nookambar back in those days?
2: All sheep, yeah.
1: Really, and so for people listening, Nookambar is south of Derby, kind of on the edge of the desert.
2: No, oh. it's, it's on the Fitzroy River, halfway between Fitzroy and Derby, Fitzroy yeah. Crossing and Derby.
1: Shows how good I am with my. I've got a map right in front yeah. of me. <laughs>
2: Well, it's, it's, it's the bottom of the bend of the Fitzroy. That's it there, yes.
1: Oh, I'm thinking more like Calyuta type, I think, on the edge of the.
2: Oh, well, that was just opposite, um,
1: Yeah. And so it was, it was sheep back then. How far did sheep go into the Kimberley?
2: There was eight stations, um, when I was, um, born, um, Mount Anderson, Liveringa, Noonkambah. Uh, Ellendale, Cowanjara, Quambin, and um, Laurel Downs—they're all sheep. On oh, Bliner Bliner Station, yeah.
1: That's just absolutely wild. So tell me a bit about your dad and his time up in the Kimberley.
2: What I can say about my father—he had—he had a tough road, you know, like a lot of people have been to war and all that, and um, he was good. Good with young people because he made you do something and learn it yourself rather than sit and watch him do it. He'd, he'd give you the the lead and say, well, you go and fix it and you had to fix it and work it out yourself. And um, one was, one incident, I had a horse that um, I was breaking horses and this horse used to come at me, no reason at all. We got in the round yard like all the other horses and this horse used to come mouth wide open and try and bite. And um, um, I went to Dad and said, oh, what can I do, Dad? You know, I'll have to shoot it. And he said, no, a bit of hose, a bit of garden hose. And I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, cut it about, you know, 18 inches long and when the horse comes at you, just give it a a good sharp whack across the nose. And he said, oh, okay. I only had to do it twice. And the horse was as good as gold after that. And um, I went to Dad and said, Oh Dad, that what you told me to do really worked. And my father said, What did I tell you? I didn't tell you anything. In other words, you know, you've learned something. Just do what you have to do and shut up. Yeah, well, that's the way he was. He made you do something yourself. He didn't come and show you. He just whatever it was, he just put it before you knew how to work it out.
1: And so when he came up to Nook and Bar, where was your mother and her family? Were they there as well, or were they on a neighbouring no, property?
2: She was on um, her brother's places; they were managing or owning. You know, um, Kenny Rose, the eldest son of George Rose, who was owner or part owner with his other brother of Mount Anderson, and Kim Rose, the second eldest son, was manager of Liveringa Station, owned by the Forrests.
1: So after, I suppose, George Rose had come up during the exploration days, he'd settled down in the Kimberley and his family had kind of gotten into the pastoral industry and that's where your two families, well your parents' families collided. Yeah, that's right, yeah. 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 And what about you? When did you come onto the scene?
2: Well, I was born on Noonkambar and, and my wife, Annette Macdonald, was born on Fossil Downs and they were the early early cattle, People that brought their cattle from um, Goulburn over New South Wales or near Goulburn, and that um, was one of the longest treks ever. And but my grandfather was first to bring like sheep up on a boat, and they had to unload them and walk them all the way from Beagle Bay across to Yeda or somewhere, you know. And and um, so they both, they both got you know should be proud of their achievements, what they did, you know.
1: Where, where did the sheep come from on the boat?
2: Oh, Perth, down in Perth.
1: So they put them on a boat and brought them up to Beagle Bay. Yeah. Gosh, even in the dry season, that would be quite a feat to walk sheep in that environment. Well,
2: not knowing where the water was and all that, you know, they used to send riders out in front to find out where the water was and, you know, and with the help of some Aboriginals, they, you know, got through it all right, Yeah.
1: It's absolutely wild. And so you just told one story of yourself as a child. Can you tell me a bit more about what you were like as a young boy?
2: Oh, I must have been terrible because I got that many spanks with bits of board and um, shaving strops, you know. And um, no, look, we just loved our family and um, loved what we were doing and we hated school and um, all we ever dreamt about was being back up, up north and. Doing what our father was doing, you know.
1: So, did you, if you were born in Nookumba, did you grow up there then, or you just said, no. dreaming about being back north? So, did you leave at some point?
2: No, I was sent to school when I was seven, boarding school from Nookumba, and then dad had to move on to Yard that he'd bought, and, um, so it was at Kalwinyata from, um, like school days right through to, um, a couple of years before I got married and I moved off the place before I got married and um, got married and then when Dad got crook, we went back to Cowan Yard and looked after that to sell that so we could get some funds for Dad and Mum to buy a home, you know.
1: And so whereabouts was that property that your parents bought?
2: Oh, just halfway between, 40, 40 miles north of Noonkambar.
1: Oh, okay. So it's not actually, a. so is it no longer a pastoral lease today then?
2: Oh, it's all part of the, um, McLaughlin.
1: Oh, part of, yeah, part of like the Bliner. Jumbuck, yeah. 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 Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: Wow. So your dad, after coming up as, as a manager, managed to, I suppose, save up and buy his own pastoral land. Yeah. yeah. And was that, was that all lease country back in those days? Yeah. All lease. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 All
1: right. And so more about you as a young fella. Uh,
2: I, I used to go out with the Aboriginal kids and, and men, I used to enjoy that a lot, learning all their habits and the ways they did things and all that. And quite a, oh, about 10 years ago, I was in Fitzroy Crossing and I said to some kids out at the airport, I was at the airport and, and we were talking and they said, Oh, have you, have you made this? And they said, No, don't know how to make it. And I said, Well, you should because the Aboriginal people taught me how to to make this, it was a straw, how to make a straw to suck water out of a barb tree and they, they didn't know anything about it. And so, you know, I was teaching them something of their own tradition, traditional ways, you know. But they are the sort of things I enjoyed was hunting with them, learning how to catch snakes and guananas and make all the noises to frighten all the birds, to make them land in the trees so you could hit them with a boomerang or a shanghai, you know, and um, all these sorts of things. And... Um, How to make emu stop running, and you know all their call signs and all that, and and all the signs on the ground. What you do to show people what you know? I mean, that's a snake.
3: Oh,
1: okay. You
2: know. Yeah. And um, emu. So
1: sort of like sign language. Yeah, 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 yeah. When you were at boarding school, did you get to come back up north during the holidays?
2: Most of the holidays, the short ones, no, we went to country towns and we made friends with other people, went to other properties, closer to – because we were so far away, you know, by the time you got up. and The state ship used to take about 14 days to get up in those days, you know, because it used to call in Geraldton. and
1: Oh, you'd have to you know. catch a boat to get oh, at back Christmas, up to the
2: Kimberly. Christmas time, no, we used to enjoy it, you know, yeah. it was a bit of a break. and um, oh, and, and the planes, you know, they take like – two and a half hours now, it used to take us all day in the aeroplane, you know, daylight till dark and, uh, yeah.
1: I can imagine you must have been going back and forth between two very different worlds, kind of, you said, you know, being around Nookambar and and that part of the Kimberley and going out hunting and, and doing all sorts of things with the local Aboriginal people and then down in Perth, I imagine, was a whole world away, not just geographically but figuratively as well.
2: Yeah, it was, and but when we were at school, like on the weekends, we'd go and help. Our grandfather was only like a mile and a half away. We'd walk or ride, when we got bikes we used to ride, and we'd, you know, bag all his grapes and figs and dig his veggie garden and, you know, help him, you know, do all that sort of work, you know, farm-type work, you know.
1: So even when you were in town or, or in the city, you still got to have that bit of element of rural life.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I couldn't swim and um, couldn't do much else. And, you know, so, so that, I wasn't a footballer or, you know, but, um, yeah.
1: Do that make you nervous if you couldn't swim for the only way to get back to the Kimberley was to get on a boat and go up the coast?
2: <laughs> I always frightened stiff. <laughs>
1: That doesn't sound like fun at all, especially as you get further north in those waters and that's where the crocodiles are.
2: The the further north you got, the happier we were because the water was smooth. But between Perth and Geraldton, that was just seasick days.
1: Wow, that's rough. Yeah. And tell me about your wife, Annette. How did you first meet? Tell me the great love story. Oh, uh, And she'll be listening to this, so make sure it sounds good.
2: Well... There there used to be only one road between um, Broome and Derby and Fitzroy and it was just a bush track and every time you travelled somewhere you pulled up and you normally stopped at the property overnight because it took so long and um, we first met, and you know, we were kids, I can't remember whether we were four or five or whatever it was but And it used to reckon I used to run away and hide when she came, you know. And uh, it wasn't until I got to about 22, I suddenly realised that, you know, um, what, you know, love was and being in love and and that. And um, we got married when I was 25, yeah.
1: You can't give me the shortened version of that story. I want to know when was the first time after the age of five that you saw her again and you were like, oh, wow, look at that lady.
2: Oh, we, we saw each other a lot because um, my brother was very keen on her sister and they used to come down to Kalwanyadra a lot and, you know, and they'd ride off together and leave Anna and I together. And, and um, yeah, so um, it all went from there, you know.
1: Did your brother end up marrying her no, sister? N- no. no, no, Oh, that, no. that would have worked out well. Yeah, oh, well, <laughs> at least it brought you guys together.
2: Yeah, yeah, well those are sort of things you never you never know and you know it, it would have been you know I thought it would have been nice you know that she didn't didn't choose David so yeah. yeah
1: and so what decade would this have been in
2: oh uh, the late 50s early 60s
1: so what was it like trying to court a lady back in the 50s in the Kimberley? Like you said it was just a dirt road between Broome and everywhere else and I'm guessing there wasn't really a drive-in cinema or anything too flash to <laughs> take someone out on a date if it's going to take you 3 days to get to town to go on said date.
2: Well, you drive drive for a few hours to get there and you fed in winter you're fed a cup of soup and some toast and with the arms folded behind you watching every move you made and then you said goodbye and drove all the way home again. <laughs> It was only, thank goodness, it was only my mother-in-law to watch me. There wasn't, sadly, I didn't have a father-in-law and he passed away before we got married and um, trying to get over the Fitzroy River when it was running and um, probably the most silly thing I did because of love and um, I got over the other side and and it had got bogged and she couldn't, didn't turn up and then I had to walk back over the river which going across was all right but coming back was a nightmare and... um, I thought I'd met my last days because the, the water gets your knees and starts wobbling your knees, and you're leaning over trying to lean into the water. This is in the middle of the night, sort of, or well not middle of the night, but it's dark, and um, yeah, a bit scary. Yeah.
1: So this obviously would have been during the wet season time of year. Were you going to visit Annette, and the the, the river had come up?
2: No, so no. We, there was a um. Or were you returning? There home? was an annual do at the police station in Fitzroy, and um, we'd all. You know, you'd all go to the, whether it was a hospital ball or the police party or whatever it was, you know. There's only two party a year in Fitzroy and, well, and the race club and the race meeting, but um, yeah. So it was pretty limited how many times you saw each other.
1: And so that, that time, though, the river was up and you just given the choice of turning around and going home or crossing through a croc infested river.
2: No, I had to get back over the river to the, she was on one side of the river and I was on the other, and mm-hmm. I had to go over and meet her. It's probably just that, well I didn't, because there's no way we would have got back over the river the two of us.
1: Oh, okay. So you were you okay? So you had to go and kind of pick her up, and then you, ideally you're going to bring her back with you.
2: Well, that like a escort her I, back across. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have because the river too too risky. Yeah, but you did cross she could, over she could, one way. She could swim, and I couldn't. Yeah. You know, and you know. then.
1: But you still still cross through because, you know, the Fitzroy's definitely got its fair share of crocodiles and in the wet season I'm sure there'd be a few salties uh, lurking around.
2: In in those days it didn't have too many crocs. It's only since the um, protection of all these animals that have come in that the crocodile, you know, in the early days all the Aboriginals used to eat crocodiles and and that because there wasn't a lot of food and and, um, they used to ask us to shoot them so they could have something to eat and... And, um, it's only since the protection of crocodiles came that they've built their numbers up to shocking state now. And, and, they're actually eating a lot of fish that people don't know. And Mount of Barramundi, I've seen with huge bites taken out of their backs or their fins and that. It, you know, it tells you a story that they should have a cull on crocodiles to, um, you know, just go from river to river and then back to the other river and then just culling the crocodiles to give the poor fish a go, you know.
1: I just, I'm just thinking of this story, though, John. It just makes such a better story if we tell people that you crossed a croc-infested water to get to the love of your
3: life. <laughs> Doesn't it make for <laughs> a- I'm sure it'll make Annette a lot happier about oh, it. <laughs> yeah. Look, it,
2: it, that, it was, the crocs didn't worry me. When she went around Australia and got back and about 20 young guys turned up at the fossil boundary gate and all wanted a job at fossil, that worried me more than <laughs> bloody crocodiles. <laughs>
1: I love that. We'll get to that in just a moment. Then I'm going to make a note. So tell me, uh, Annette, so same with you, Annette's family goes a long way back in the Kimberley region. Can you tell me a bit about her family and their history?
2: It's been well recorded, you know, the, the great trek they did from Goulburn to um, the Kimberleys and the, and the Durex, you know, and um, how my father-in-law got the property know, he came up he wasn't the first in line to get it but the others didn't want it. He came up as a young jackaroo and helped his uncle and he liked it so much and the, his uncle's children didn't want it so he asked if he could get it and um, with the help of Kidman and, and that um, and the banks he managed to get fossil and that's how it all came about, you know.
1: It's a while to think of somebody saying, nah, I don't really want it when we're talking about fossil downs, which is quite often referred to as the jewel of the Kimberley. And to think back then, somebody was like, "Mm, nah, not keen.
2: Well, look, it was like I said with my father, it was a hard life when they all first came up. You know, it was a tough life. And, um, you know, like all our... I've always said that our parents had a, a, a tough life, or our grandparents had the toughest, and then our parents had a tough life. We've had the best life, and I pity the kids coming after us because, you know, the way the the country and the world's going, that it's it's going to be really tough from again, but in a different different manner from now on.
1: And so it was eighteen eighty two when Annette's family first came to Fossil, and you said no, no,
2: no, it was uh, they got got there in eighty six. They took the lease up in eighty two. And they got there in and 86. In 86. Yeah, yeah, it took them three and a half years to, to get, get there. there. That's mm.
1: incredible. And so you said just before that, you know, the previous generations had it so much harder than the ones to follow. Can you give me a bit of a snapshot as to what life was like for them?
2: For the early people. Yeah.
1: What did it look like back in 1886 in the Kimberley?
2: Well, they were just humpies, rough timber. Humpies, um, there's no running water, no flush toilets. Um, when I was a kid, um, my father and mother got the first flush toilet in the Kimberleys. And um, that's just when I was like four or five. We had no – the only refrigeration we used to have was the Coke, you know, the um, Coke freezers, you know, with the hessian and water dripping through them, the Coke, and there was no – and then the kerosene fridge came. And then the gas freezer and then the electric freezer and then the, um, you know, the big walk in freezers, which changed our lives completely, you know.
1: The rate of change that's happened throughout your lifetime must just blow your mind when you look back and think about where you've come from and what things are today.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, look, look, it's, it's, if, if you could put everyone that goes to the bush through the same uh, hardships that the old people had, it might, might make people, uh, um, respect the older people a bit more than what they do. And it's, and it's sad now that young people just have no regard for any value of any equipment and things like, the, they're used to, you know, if, if they had to pay for it themselves, they might change their mind. But a lot of them have got no respect for valuable equipment or anything. It's just a, it's a thing that you can buy again down the shop.
1: And it's, and it's just happened so fast in such a relative, if we think about like the history of the world, it's happened in such a relatively short period of time, less than a hundred years. We've gone from those living conditions to what we have today. Whereas I think the rate of change, if you look back in time, has been a lot slower. So we're all kind of in these new waters very fast.
2: Yeah, well, I don't think there's many more improvements they can do with (laughs) refrigerators or toilets or things like that. Challenge accepted. (laughs) You
1: never know, John. So after you and Annette got married, well, actually, tell me the story of how you proposed. Let's not skip past that great detail. Tell
2: me there's a story. there was a, um, a, a... Party at Fossil and a Christmas party, I think it was. And um, I asked her to, to marry me, and she said, I beg your pardon. She said, Come out and ask me again. So I had to go out the front of the house, there was no one watching or anything, and proposed to her again. So, you know, it was, um, I had to rephrase it a bit differently. <laughs>
1: So it was the first time in front of everyone. Like, did you make everyone like stop and listen? Or no, you
2: there weren't many people there. Uh, just that, um, she just wanted to hear it privately, you know. Oh. And no, we, no one no no one heard me the first time, but she just wanted me to make sure she heard right, you know.
1: I love that. I'm so glad I asked you for that story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you got married, and I and was it very long after that that you guys took over management of Fossil Downs?
2: No, it was um, a few years later. We uh, we were at Noongarbar on an out camp there when we got married, and um, back home. And then when Dad got crook and had to go, we had to leave Noongarbar and go back to Cowanjada. And when we could sell Cowanjada, we sold that so Mum and Dad could have some money, um, because like all of us in those days, you, no one had any cash put aside. It was all went back into the property. And then we went to Ellendale, which uh, and its father had bought, and we were, um, we'd been offered other jobs, but and it didn't want to be too far away from home. And we are at Ellendale, and, um, then a, a guy, a guy, um, one of the uh, managers there was leaving, and he asked me if I'd like the job. So it was
1: 1968 that you and Annette Came back to Fossil Downs as managers. Yeah, what was Fossil Downs like back then?
2: Well, all the country was eaten out, you know, completely eaten out. All the um, all the cattle places and the sheep places were um, all pretty pretty bad, you know. And um, on the cattle places mainly, there wasn't much infrastructure, fences, and and that was just more open run range country type of thing and um, yeah it needed a lot of development and waters and and that and um, and um, care of the care of the country what we'd been taught by our father, you know and um, there's a lot of erosion, road erosion, wheel track erosion, um, river erosion where the cattle have been going down the banks to get water and probably before that too as the country was either burnt, you know, burnt badly with hot burns or overstocking, it created a lot of erosion. And, um, you know, it it sort of... It wasn't until 1983 when we had a huge flood that um, we got all that to change around.
1: Can you describe, for people listening that may have never travelled to the Kimberley or seen pictures, can you describe the landscape
2: well, when I first went to a cattle property, most of them were in the same condition. We used to chase pussy cats and some of the station managers used to let us try and throw a steer or a cow heifer, throw get in practice for, you know, um throwing cattle to, to um like the the cowboys do you know they throw cattle over yeah but we used sort to of chase pussy cats and like like actual cattle, cats cat, like. yeah wild cats and <laughs> try and shoot them and um and then after 1983 you know the whole thing changed you know because we're moving the cattle and um there's no room you couldn't chase things then because there's so much vegetation came up and um it used to be so big you could just take off anywhere and you know, drive like hell, you know. Fossil was, um, it didn't have alluvial black soil. It had volcanic black soil, which is not as good as alluvial black soil. And they had uh, probably 100,000 acres of that. And they would have had probably um, oh, 50,000 acres of frontage. And all the rest was sort of, uh, the biggest part of fossil was all rocks and creeks and spinifex and... Um, that and um, a bit of wattle country, but a lot of ranges and ridges and creeks and it it, it wasn't looked upon as the, um, best grazing land um, the neighboring places were um, like gogo and jubilee and down the river liveringa and all those places were far better you know grass type properties than than fossil was, but fossil was um I, don't, I suppose it was unique in a way that my father-in-law started to try and really breed good quality shorthorn cattle and um, we, we sort of copied what, what he did, you know, and with the drought masters. Um, Dick Northcott, I asked me to go to a sale at... He was the manager of Mullabula Station and he had a few drought masters and he asked me to go over to Queensland with him and the deal was my mother-in-law and wife said I wasn't to buy a bull. And we'd tried Brahman and we'd tried Santa Catruda's and I went over there and I saw this bull and I thought, God, my mother-in-law would love that one because it looked more like a shorthorn than a drought master, so I bought it and when I got back, you know, they said, oh, jokingly, they said, oh, did you buy one? I said, yeah. And they said, oh, you didn't, did you? Anyhow, when they saw this bull, I was, you know, I was number one, I got a good ticket then and... uh, and uh, that's how it developed. But we went from there with that one bull. Um, then we went over every year and just bought more and more bulls, but good quality bulls. We didn't. People thought we were mad because we were buying eight thousand dollar bulls right at the beginning, and people said we we're mad. And I sh- you know, we just kept doing what we we're doing, and so we progressed a lot quicker than most other properties.
1: So at a time where most of the Kimberley was running shorthorn cattle and some people were starting to make the change to Brahman cattle. Why did you go to Droughtmaster?
2: Well, it was because of the um, live export was all Brahmams and no one down south liked um, Brahmams and they didn't seem to mind Droughtmaster type, Santa Catrudes type cattle and um, Ernie Bridge, the local member at the time, we had a meeting at Fossil. Everyone said what he asked. Everyone what they were going to to do, and most people stood up and said Brahman, Brahman, Brahman. And I said, "Oh, drought, master." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, because be able to attack both markets. They the live, they would take them for live export, but you could also take them south for slaughter."
1: What year would this have been in?
2: It would have been oh early eighties somewhere. and you know, I can't remember the exact date, but it was a time that Exxon was created and the government bought Gogo and all those places. It's in the-
1: just incredible that for a lot of people they think perhaps the shift in attitude towards what breed of cattle should be run in the north started to change after the live export ban in 2011. That's when a lot of people said that they started um, being open to the idea of running a softer breed, something with a little less boss indicus in it but you were already making this call thirty years in advance.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's the reason why, for live export failed, we still had another market.
1: But you're, you're thirty years ahead of everyone, John. Like, no, no, <laughs> in a way.
2: no, 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 no. No, it was just, just um. When we bought the Brahmins, um, I put them in the yard and that and. We only had them for 12 months and our stock camp, which was all Aboriginal, hated them. So I, I was more or less forced to change whether I liked it or not, you know, but I did, I didn't like Brahmas much either. I'd rather have the, um, rather have the drought masters. Well, I told you it was all ridges and rocks, mainly ridges and rocks and hills, and living at Fossil was like being in a Bay Marie because the ranges were about 50 yards from the, the house, and when they got hot, they made everything else stinking hot. And we never had 24 hour power till, oh, probably be the, in the late 90s, before we had 24 hour power, it might have even been the year 2000 before we had 24 hour power, but at night there, it used to be so hot at night, we used to get, get the hose and put the hose on us and hop back in the bed and lie on the towel. It was so hot. We all used to sleep outside.
1: Did you ever – how far away is the homestead from the river or from – Oh, about two miles. Okay, so did you yeah. ever have any, like, crocodiles just kind of cruise up to your homestead area?
2: Only only when the flood was on they'd come up. Mm.
1: So were you still sleeping outside then?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. We've had <laughs> snakes in the bed and all that, but that's, you know, they, I think they were just as glad to get away from the flood water as we were, you know.
1: Tell me about the homestead. I understand that it's kind of as significant as the property itself.
2: Well, Anna's father was an architect, like, building. There's a building over at um, one of the sports grounds over in New South Wales um, that he designed apparently. Whether it's still up, I don't know. But he um, designed the homestead at Fossil and it, it was pretty, you know... Pretty grand. He'd do some modification to it because when it got wet and the, the ground there was always, it wasn't actually moving, but you get cracks in the ground that made you believe that it was moving. And he put up these barriers to hold the building together, which did a very, very good job, you know. And, um, um, he had a, they've made the, they all made the bricks, they all make, loaded, made bricks in the river. And, um, they're all going to town or somewhere and the, Plane flew over and told Dick Fallon at the crossing in that um, the river was coming down and um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law got to Fitzroy and Dick Fallon said, oh, where are you going? And they said, oh, Nenkenborough or Derby or somewhere. And he said, oh, no, you're not. And they said, yes, they are. And he said, no, the river's running. So they had a tear back. They spent all day and night cutting, getting all their bricks that made out of the river. So they had to save all the bricks out of the river, yeah, because oh, they, they were all made in the river and just left there, you see. just
3: so made out of the mud in the river. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's made of the Fitzroy River. Yeah.
1: That is incredible. Yeah. And so when was that house built, do you think?
2: Oh, it was started, um, oh, in the early 40s. It was, and my wife can tell you more about that and, and, and that, but, um, uh, very modern for its time, you know, and, um, the upstairs used to be all open and he'd sleep out in the open upstairs and then in about 1960 um, he covered the openings up um, when his daughters were going to school, like the late 50s, 60s, he covered it all over. uh, But we all used to sleep. When we were young we used to go up there and we'd all sleep outside in the open, you know, just on the flat roofs, you know. And the parents could watch the... The kids playing up and the kids could watch the parents playing up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Classic. And you ended up being at Fossil Downs for almost 50 years, which is incredible. What are the standout memories of your time there?
2: Well, the most standout one was the love of my wife. She just put up with so much from me and um, she deserves a medal for putting up with me. But, yeah, I think another one was... The amount of time the staff used to stop on fossil and work on fossil you know that some of them were one lady now she's still with us she's been with for over forty years, and another young guy that sadly passed away in an accident he he was with for twenty twenty odd years and um you know most of the people would stop or cook some of them were eleven years some were eight years um you know at um if you treated people like like you'd like to be treated, you you know it it, um, it seemed to pay back, you know, rather than being aloof of anyone, you know, you um, you could had something in common all the time, you know.
1: During your time at Fossil, we spoke just before about uh, changing your herd to drought masters. There are a few other things that you implemented during your time which were sort of seen as um, sort of you were an early adopter or innovator in some areas, and that is uh, in particular your grazing management. Can you tell me like, what triggered that and then what you actually did for your, your grazing practices that were so different for those times?
2: Well, it, it's pretty well common sense, really. If you build a road and you, you make scratches in the ground... Um, if you leave a mark there, the water will get it and start digging a gully, you know. And my father started, when we were kids, we used to use a, a hand scoop and a little old Massey Harrison 44K tractor and we used to make humps on the roads, which in Queensland were called woo boys. But the main roads department over here called them Henwood humps because they'd never seen them before. And um the humps um really play a important role in looking after the country erosion of the country on roads, fence lines and all all those sorts of things. And even when you creek crossings, a lot of people just push a creek in, or well, we used to push the creek out to make a hump on the the bank so the water wouldn't wash away all the just little things like that. And we never used to like leaving a windrow, what they call a windrow, which is a mound of dirt on the side and we'd try and grade the road flat. We never tried to form a road up because once you formed a road up, it was on a downhill, the water couldn't run away, and then it would run down the side of the road and create create erosion. So all our roads had to be... um, Any windrow had to be on the top side, and the road had to be graded flat.
1: So can you describe what a Henwood Hump or a Woboy would do for somebody if they've perhaps not driven over one on a dirt road... I'm sure everyone's driven over a version of one at some point, but if you've not spent much time driving on dirt roads, even just in parking lots and shopping centres, they have little speed bumps, I suppose, now, and that's to slow down vehicles driving through that area. But when you have them on dirt roads and they're not like like the little speed bumps because they're made out of the dirt, but that's to slow water down. Instead of Well, and also vehicles when you're driving, but yeah. primarily to slow water down. So how does that work?
2: Well, you've got to look at your country in the way the the water's running, and um, the best way to do it is dig your, your sump on the downstream side, not on the upstream side, um, because the water can run into that and then run around your hump. But if you dig it downstream, it doesn't matter if the water runs into that because it just goes away. But you've got to make your hump pretty, pretty big. The bigger the better, the longer, the wider the better and cattle trains and that can go over it quite easily then and um, a lot of people don't do it but I, I've, you can fly over a place in the Kimberleys. Well, when I left Fossil, there's still two places on the, that I used to fly over. There was eight roads. Get washed out, get washed out, get washed out and they just, instead of putting humps up, they just moved the road Move the road over. I won't name them because they probably. I know some of them have been fixed up, but um, one place hadn't done anything, and and most people now are starting to. Um, Jardine and I saw some couple of humps the other day, but they weren't big enough, and the water had gone over the top of them. You've got to, you know, you've got to make them decent size humps, and um, but. The Aboriginals uh, fossil used to love them, and uh, they said, "Oh, you put more hump up, John." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Oh, more guana," <laughs> because when the when it rained, if you've only got twenty points, it'd make enough water to run into the hole, the sump. and of course, all the guanas and the animals used to come to get the water, and all they had to do was drive past and, bang, guana. You know,
3: <laughs> great benefits, and yeah, look, John, the the. Henwood Humps are just such an incredible thing. The WO Boys, incredible thing that we try and um, make sure we promote through our NRM work um, in managing roads. And to really get deeper into your question there, Steph, they help because they stop water flow. They 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 disrupt that flow when it's when it gets onto a gets onto a road. Often your flow will be kind of diverted down that bare ground, right? And if the ground's bare that flow picks up a bit of pace uh, because there's no vegetation or kind of roughage to slow it down and break that um, velocity which can then cause erosion and problems like that so by having a roadblock having a speed bump it kind of slows that flow down stops it pushes it to the side and one of the key ideas you're saying about having the sumps on the downstream side there john exactly so it's it's Redirecting that water back across the road and back onto the country, spreading it out out of that sump, hmm. rather than directing the water down that um, down your road and eventually cutting your road out. So it's just it's a speed hump for the water to spread it back out onto the landscape.
2: Yeah. When now, the, when the main roads they built some between Yeda and Livringa or not far from Yeda and they went a bit further they thought they were going to be smarter so they put them on an angle to get the water to run off instead of being pulled up and then run off sideways they thought oh we'll make it um run off more gently and when the fast cars came along they were flipping the cars over because the the speed hump was on an angle and the cars were going so fast they just it, it flipped them over so they had to They had to modify their speed humps and put them square to the road rather than, um, on an angle.
1: Um, I've got to ask, why do you think the name, I mean, today I really only hear them referred to as Woe Boys. Why do you think the name Henwood Humps didn't, didn't stick around?
2: Well, because the Queenslanders think that they were started over there before they had them over there too, you know, to their, to their credit, you know. And um But my father was the first to do it and the, no one had seen it before in the in the Kimberleys. The so main roads hadn't and the shy people hadn't and um they were the ones that named them Henwood Humps.
1: So sh- I think we should start a campaign to make sure everyone, at least in the Kimberley and the Pilbara or anywhere else in WA, calls Let's them the, a, WA. A, yeah, hen, yeah. a Henwood Hump, no, not a woe boy. No, no, <laughs> as no, far no. as I'm concerned, the word woe boy is now a swear word and I don't want to hear it. I only mm. want to hear Henwood yeah. Hump.
2: Yeah, well... That's why when you build a hump, you've got to build it so a road train can go over it and you've got to build it so the young people hooning around don't hit a sharp hump and flip themselves over or damage the vehicle so that more gentle you can have the hump for every reason. Um, if you're going to build them, build them gently. Don't build them um, abrupt, you know.
1: Yeah, definitely can uh, relate to that. So, tell me—I understand that 1983, 1984, there were some floods out at Fossil Downs, and that sort of was a bit of a turning point for you in when you started to change some management practices and try out some new things. What can you tell me about that time?
2: Well, we we went from a drought era, like from seventy. To The 70s, early 70s, 71, 72, big droughts went right through to 83, um, which um, was going to be a drought too for us. It still was a pretty dry year because um, upstream they had 15 inches in three days. We had four inches and all this water just kept coming down and um, my wife said, I'll stop at the front steps and it was rising at a foot an hour, so I couldn't see how to stop at the front steps. And it just kept coming, and it was a five-foot average through all the buildings. And um, we had seven floods in ten years, and five of them were through the, all the buildings. And um, it was after those first couple of floods that made us realise, because we lost so many stock in the first flood, uh, I forget the exact number, but we lost about 6,000 head of cattle and everyone said, oh, you couldn't lose that many. And I said, well, how come we TB tested so many thousands and then next year we only TB tested, you know, so few after that and that proved that we had lost all those cattle and um, because we were the only property that TB tested the complete property in those days and um, so we knew exactly what we we had. But it was after those floods that made me realise that we'd have to do something to to stop the loss of cattle so we started putting up fences and moving the cattle away from the floods in the wet and um, when we did or for years before that I'd been trying to get all these other grasses to grow you know the local grasses Mulla and ruby bush and blue bush and all that to grow and it would grow but then wouldn't survive and it wasn't until the flooding came That we, when we moved the cattle, we noticed all this stuff starting to to grow and survive. And so that sort of twigged a bit of a thing in our brain to say, you know, let's keep moving the cattle, which we did. And um, the way the country developed after that was unbelievable.
1: So prior, so prior to these floods, if I understand correctly, the cattle could graze pretty much wherever they wanted, whether it was high country, low country out in the floodplains and obviously wet season. Um, so they would kind of stick to that sweeter country, but that's where when the floodwaters came that they would...
2: No, no, that's we, where- when we first went to Foster, we did a lot of fencing. Mm-hmm. We cut it up into paddocks and all that. And, um, and um, after the floods, we had to pull a lot of that fencing down as well as some of the previous existing fencing they had there. And we we um we got enough paddocks, we had you know, enough paddocks to start controlling and moving the cattle where we wanted to.
1: But so but before this before the floods. Before the floods, where would the cattle go in the wet season?
2: Well, just on to try and get onto high ground, but a lot of the cattle that came down the river were off places that hadn't had didn't have a fence on them because they used to because it was so dry, I think they were all living on the river anyhow, y- you know, and then this ra- sudden rain came and knowing what the river did before, they didn't think it would ever do this, but, you know, the, the thousands, we could hear them all night going down the river, moving out, calling out, and in the morning when we took off in the plane to have a look before the flood got up, the the water was, the, the mobs, and mobs and mobs of cattle in mobs, you know, doing a the outside cattle were trying to climb onto the inside cattle and that was drowning them because they were turning them over, you know, and um, drowning them in the water, you know.
1: How do you cope watching that and processing it and taking it in, whether you're on the ground or up in the air, watching that happen to your cattle and there's nothing you can do about it? No,
2: nothing, nothing. We've found them hanging up in trees, you know, they're caught in forks of trees and. We found them out in the Go Go Flats where they'd all been just rolled along. They didn't have a hair left on their body because they'd been rolled over so many times; all the hair was taken off their bodies. And um, yeah, no, very sad, you know. What
1: do you do in that situation? What well, can you do?
2: Well, you you can't do anything, and just just you've got to just do what we did, and that's move the cattle. And which turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to us, you know.
1: Okay. So, so you're saying, just so I want to make sure I've got this in the right order. So before the floods came, the cattle, you did have fences and paddocks on, on fossil downs, but there were some cattle that were hanging around river country because it had been so dry and that's where the best feed was. Yeah. And then the floods came, obviously lost a lot of cattle. Um, and you, as what happens with the destruction of, of floodwaters, you had to replace a lot of the fencing infrastructure and, take some down and move it around and so you fenced off more of the river and that's when you saw when the cattle were off that country and after the floods the country came back quite different to what you'd seen ever before
2: yeah that's right yeah 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 yeah.
1: so then that that is my understanding sort of the precipice of what became a a, quite a journey for you in like land regeneration and and land management so can you take us through I suppose the broad strokes of, of that journey
2: um, yeah, well, what what we did, um, we, um, well, it was actually a young helicopter pilot, poor devil's dead now, he got killed at Tennant Creek with that, um, new train they were putting up, you know, right at Tennant Creek, um, there, and he, he said, oh, John, we should fence this off, because he's a helicopter pilot, and he, and he used to work at, um, Bunder Station with Reg Underwood, and Reg Underwood is one of these guys that, after his cousin told him what we were doing, he did it and with great success. And um, but going cutting going back, we started putting fences up off the river, so we could keep the cattle off the river and um, just move them off the river. But the cows were a different story because we had to put them on the river. But we had to oh, look at. It's hard for me to explain i'm I'm not a technically minded person, but it was just we just moved the cattle when when we were looking at the feed and the dryness of the country and and the, and the cattle in the end the cattle were telling us when to open the gate to let them back they'd They'd start coming up to the gate and saying, "Hey, come on, time to let us back into the paddock so we used to open the gates and then they'd most of them came back themselves off the river, you know
1: but this would have been one of the first or maybe perhaps the first attempt at some style of rotational grazing on this scale in the Kimberley is that that sound about right?
2: Well, not only in the Kimberley, I think in the virtually in the whole of Australia, I th- I'd say. You know, the, there was cell grazing, um, and we were doing more the holistic management because I was the only one that argued the infrastructure and all that for cell grazing was too costly and, and on, it wouldn't work on black soil. And he said, oh, yes, it does. And a chap called Joe de Pledge from Mandora Station took me to um, a place in Queensland where they had cell grazing on black soil and he was having all the trouble in the world, you know. A, his cows were getting bogged. B, they were leaving their calves behind because at a certain time of day they used to go and blow their whistle or open the gate and the cattle used to just run past and leave their calves and, you know, and a guy in Carcor, in, um, New South Wales, and he did the same thing and he was getting a lot of mismothering because he was going at the same time every day, blowing the whistle and all the cows would come and... Because le- the cows, the calves had had a drink and they'd all be asleep and all the cows used to just take off and leave the calves. So we never used to open a gate in the morning. We'd always open it late in the afternoon. As I've, you know, we've talked about before, every area is different, every state, every, is different, and this system will work if you can work your own system out. It'll, might take you a little while, might take a two or three years, but, um, these properties that have de-stocked completely, taken their stock off, and they've got good, um, regeneration results, but if they go back to, in, um, um, continuous grazing, they'll end up in the same boat again with no food. Whereas this system, you've always got feed and, and um, we're probably one of the only properties in Australia that we're actually collecting good, valuable species seed, high-protein seeds, after burning or stocking.
1: So I suppose for people listening that... Perhaps aren't familiar with grazing strategies, you know, maybe they've never even been to a farm. Um, so we've got t- kind of two main options here. You're saying continuous grazing where all set stocking, some people call it, where you put your cattle in a paddock and they just live there and graze it. And then we've got the option of, uh, You know, and there are a lot of, the language does get thrown around and used quite interchangeably, but if we say rotational grazing, this is where you're grazing cattle in an area for a specific period of time and then moving them onto different paddocks rather than having them live in the one place.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not, they're not grazed for specific time. You just watch your, watch your grasses and the cattle, the cattle will tell you when to open the gate. They, they come. They after you've been doing it for a few years, they know, and they'll come and stand at the gate waiting for you to open the gate, and that's when you open the gate. You know, let them, let them back in.
1: So, what kind of system? You know, fossil is a large property. It's over, you know, four hundred thousand hectares. Um, to be able to make paddocks to do that would be a significant, you know, capital investment to to put in that kind of infrastructure. So, how? I'm guessing you, you obviously had an effective way of doing it. How did that? work for you in your situation
2: well we try to pick areas away from water high ground avoid creek crossings uh, all those sort of things that are high maintenance high cost things and um, a lot of the fossil was undeveloped and um, if prices had been good when we were there we would have stopped and developed that country but the the um, give the new owners credit, they're doing that, they're destocking all the wild cattle and putting fences up, you know, and going to divide it up so they'll be able to run a lot more cattle, and um, as long as they rotate them, um, paddocks, where they have to cross the river, I, you know, I've suggested to them that they don't have stock in there during the wet, they've got other areas they can take them to, not far away, and um, you know, to that regenerates the country as well as takes the pressure off uh, getting the wrong, you know, the neighbour's cattle or the neighbour getting your cattle, you know.
1: So when we're talking about paddocks though and moving cattle around on a property the size of fossil, when you had it, how many paddocks were you running roughly? Is this like, you know, three paddocks or 30,
2: 300? No, look, we, we only had, um, like, Three main big paddocks. Um, the rest were some of the paddocks. What we call paddocks were actually run onto rangeland, and they, the cattle could get away, but never did because they always stopped on the river. You know, and um, but um, we had the main the main paddocks were the cow paddock and the bullock paddocks, and we divided them up smaller when. After the flooding, and that's what's enabled us to do that bit of rotational, or I call it intensive grazing because it, um, it w- wasn't done on a time factor, it was just on, on observation factor, you know, and, um, then we had a, one more paddock that, we had small paddocks that I don't really, they were just called holding paddocks or staging paddocks rather than being a, a stocking paddock, you know. Because you couldn't leave cattle in there all year, you just had to use them for a short period and then move your cattle on when you branded them or whatever you're doing, you know. Yeah, well, the, the oh. biggest the biggest thing was um, the change in the pastures, you know, and um, it was slow, but you could see it starting to come back, which it never did before when we put the seed out. You know, we planted. I picked a lot of seed from Robin to. Queensland. When every time I saw any seed, I liked mulla mulla mainly. You know, I tried to get that to growing. The other th- other thing that we noticed, we di- we didn't try and increase the numbers uh, at the time because we needed more water, and we were very short of water. And um, it was the condition of the cattle? I think that sort of told us more stories than anything. You know, um, the condition that they were in all the time. You know. And that that was the telling point that the, what you were doing was the right thing to do because we 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 didn't have to put out so much lick, and uh, because of the, the wet season, wasn't a good time to put the lick out that we we had. We tried to put it out, but we could half the time we couldn't get access. So rather than going putting a big lot of lick out and dumping it there before the wet, and they eating it all before the wet, you know, when you wanted them to eat it. Um, was sort of all over and gone because you couldn't. So we didn't. We didn't try and feed them during the wet, which a lot of people do, for, um, only for phosphorus deficiency. But um, the cattle seemed to do do fine, and you know, they were all in good order, and you know, carving carving well, and yeah.
1: So once you started changing your Land management and grazing practices in the early 80s, or I guess closer towards the mid 80s, perhaps you had another 30 years at Fossil Downs. What were the changes in the country, in the landscape, and the wildlife and the animals that you saw over the over that period of time before you left?
2: Well, the biggest, the biggest um, obvious thing was when we had more floods. You know, big. Wets. We didn't have the muddy water coming down the creek. We had clean water coming down the creeks, and that said that your country was in good shape. um if you look at other places, all the water's all muddy, and and that. Well, we actually had, you know, pretty clean water. When you fly flew over it, you could see the different stages of the river and the water. You could almost say, oh, that's the Leopold River and that's the Margaret River. And then you'd see our creeks, the water was, you know, there was clear water, which proved there was no erosion or soil loss going on. And that's with cool, assisted with cool early burns in the year rather than hot burns late in the year when you get a big downfall of rain and everything just goes whoosh and ends up in the stream. With the cool early cool burns, your country, you're giving your country time to regenerate, flower, seed, and, um, go back to more or less normal the wildlife didn't, it didn't increase um as i said before the, the frill neck lizards i i rang a guy up it was our head stockman years ago and if he'd seen any frill neck lizards on fossil and he said no and um that's what i thought too because i hadn't seen any and um they were really starting to come back and just not that but um the wildlife mob from Mornington came over to do a bird study and they couldn't believe the number of birds we had and the rivers, waters and rivers came and said, want to know how we had such healthy pools and, you know, everything was seen to be going back to, you know, the old days, you know.
1: Actually, I've... I've
2: Before I've Europeans came. came.
1: I've just realised that we've spent a fair bit of time talking about your region work on fossil and all the things you've done to... Sort of repair the country and the landscape, but we haven't actually established how it got into se- such a state of disrepair in the first place.
2: Oh, continu- all- t- continuous over continuous grazing and overstocking, and no control of fires. Um, they all they all contribute to a, a desert desolate, a desolate landscape, you know, because. Taking fires, they fought fires at the wrong time, just burn everything and kill everything. Um, continuous stocking does the same as fires. They eat every, all the good stuff and it never, because they're in that paddock all the time, it's never allowed to grow back. Yeah, well, it was, it was a continuous grazing and the fires and, um, yeah. Was, there,
1: was there ever like unmanaged stock numbers with all the feral cattle running around and stuff as well? Oh
2: yeah, well, that's, that's, that was overstock, continuous grazing, you know, they do, do more harm than, you know, donkeys and the, all that did a lot of harm too. But, um, continuous grazing is the biggest, is the biggest, one of the biggest killers and, and out of control hot fires.
1: We're going to have a more in-depth discussion with you about your management practices in a separate podcast episode. So for now, I'll start wrapping up this one. I want to ask you, looking back at your time at Fossil, what would you say you are most proud of? Because there are quite a few things. You know, you've got the, the change to drought masters, the staff retention and the loyalty and the legacy with your staff, um, kind of pioneering the way in, in rotational grazing in the Kimberley and the rangelands of Australia. And that's, you know, just a few off the cuff. I'm sure there are many other things you've done, um, or been involved with. What sort of, what, what are you most proud
2: of? Oh, probably the regeneration of the country. You know, um, the amount of animals. When we went there, there wasn't a frill-neck lizard. When we left, there was hundreds of them. You know, and and the, the guanas came back, and you know all the animal, wild animals were coming, coming back. And and um, before I left, I thought I saw some night parrots. Um, only ever saw those parrots once, and and. Um, you know, I reckon they were night parrots because they had the short little stumpy tail and all that. And, um.
3: That's incredible, John. You never told me about that.
2: No, well, I didn't want people going out there and annoying people. And, um. No, the, the regeneration and, and, the, and the improvement of the stock and, uh, you know, the quality of the stock and, um. Yeah, as you said, the people before and, um the longevity of all the machinery.
1: Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. We can't let you get away without telling us. I have heard that uh, you never really had to repair much out there. How did you manage such a fee? Uh,
2: uh, years ago, the, the government sent a guy called... Um, oh, now I've forgotten his name. Oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, the government sent a uh, guy up to study all the economic um, aspects of the property... And he came to us and did us first and then he went around all the other properties and out of the blue he came back again. And I said, Oh, what do you want now? And, um, he said nothing. He just said, Oh, I just want to congratulate your wife. And I said, What for? And he said, Well, she was the most honest and gave the, the best, most honest detail of all the costings of, you know, she didn't, didn't try and hide anything. And he said, oh, and you've got a problem. And I said, what's that? And he said, oh, your maintenance bill is higher than anyone else's. And I said, oh, what can I do? Ross Guyton was his name. And oh, what can I do, Ross? And he said, oh, nothing. And I said, oh, double Dutch, Ross. I said, "You tell me I've got a problem. You've been everywhere. Tell me how to fix it. And he said, oh, just, just keep doing what you're doing because your maintenance bill is so far lower than anyone else's my maintenance bill was higher than anyone else's, but my rep- repair bill was so far lower than anyone else's. He said, just keep doing what you're doing.
1: That's wonderful. So so essentially by you were more into prevention than fixing yeah. problems after the fact.
2: Yeah, yeah, just good, clean maintenance, that's all. And regular, regular clean maintenance. Um, yeah.
1: If you had your time again at Fossil, what would you do differently?
2: Well, I probably would have, probably would have, um, been, become a helicopter pilot to, to start with because it would have saved a lot of hours and that of driving, you know, it takes so long to drive somewhere when you just want to check a water where you could, up the top end, where you could just fly up and, you know, start an engine or something, you know. Um, yeah, well, uh, Oh, look! That was a that was a tricky question. That one. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was a big
1: one. It came out of the blue. Yeah, Steph loves yeah. these big questions, yeah. John. Um,
3: and let's assume that's with all the knowledge you gained from what you did. Like if you had that, you know, if you were, you had this knowledge now that you've gained over over that experience, and you then went to a station like Fossil, like you did back in the back in that day, um, would you have done anything different? From the get-go, do you reckon?
1: Yeah, if we took you as you are today or as your mind is today and took you back to 1968, what do you reckon you'd change?
2: Oh, look, there's there's so many things. Hindsight's a great thing. and You know, there would have been like we always bought um, on the cheap side rather than the smaller side rather than the bigger side, I should say, because... Um, when we were buying a bulldozer or a truck, you know, we, we didn't go for the one we should have bought. We went for the the smaller one. You know, it would have paid us to get a slightly bigger one because the country's so tough up there. You know, our little D6 we had, it's over 50 years old now. and it's still going. They just put new tracks on it the other day and the mechanic guys down in Perth... They said, oh, they couldn't believe it when the guy rang him up wanted these parts and he said, oh, are you for real, mate? And he said, yeah. He said, it's still still in good order. So, you know, but if we'd bought a bigger machine, it would have handled the rocky country a lot easier and the poor little thing, you know, it really battled. But the beauty of the D6 was we had a truck. We made a truck body that was a tip truck. We made a truck body, designed a, a friend of mine in Derby, Michael Jerry, he's an engineer. He designed the trip Truck body that it would be able to load the bulldozer on. And, um, so we had a truck that could actually cart the bulldozer rather than a low loader. Because a prime mover, when we went to Fossil, wouldn't have got far at all because it didn't have the traction. You know, pulling a semi, where a body truck with the weight over the wheels, you can go a lot, lot further. And, um, um, a guy, a guy, he thought he'd copy me. I won't mention names. So he, he said, "Oh, you got your bulldozer on the truck." And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Oh, so he put his on his truck." And because his truck wasn't specially, the tray wasn't specially built, he, he bent it all. <laughs> and uh, so he had to get it. They put railway iron underneath to reinforce it all, you know. So,
3: geez, goes but, to show how important those hammer and spanner skills are, John, <laughs> out there in the bush. Yeah.
2: No, well, I've had a, I've had a lot of, lot of help. And when I said to my, you know, about my father. Being probably one of the best teachers, this guy's the engineer's father was another one. He, his name was Leo Gujeri and he was a he was a jack of all trades. He was a mechanic. He was a leather man. He was a he could do anything. He's a water driller, everything. And um, he used to tell us these stories. And we used to really listen and um, take note of them. And because um, he'd had to work the hard, he had the hard battle of you know. Before it was all made easy and um, he um, really, really good guy to, you know, teach you things, you know. Um, simple things like when you take your head off your block of your engine. In the old days, the, the studs used to be in the block and they weren't recessed. And if someone over-tensioned the bolts, it had slightly raised the metal on the block. And so when the gasket came down, the gasket never actually sat f- square and flush. And he said, what you do, you take the studs out and you run a file over it. You don't file it in narrow, in short. You do a continuous run with your file. And I've had the same problem. I've done it twice and it fixed both motors up, you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, just listen. He never showed me, but he told me. And, and you, you know, and and other thing was with scraping bearings, he, he told us how to scrape bearings to fit bearings to an engine and all those little tricks, you know, but... um. People don't, don't hear of and don't, they wouldn't even know what a bearing scraper looked like, you know.
1: Looking back on your story so far, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learnt across your life?
2: Not to argue with my wife.
3: Definitely <laughs> noting that one in my <laughs> notebook as well, <urgent>. um. <laughs> John. That's true.
2: I, I, I think the um, biggest lesson I've ever learned in life is to respect others like you'd like to be respected.
0: Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations Team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. If you
1: enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au, where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia, all of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations, and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.